Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. You're listening to Scaffold, a podcast featuring interviews with architects, artists, and designers. I'm your host, Matthew Blunderfield. In this episode, I speak with Oliver Knight and Rory McGrath of the London-based design studio OKRM. Founded in 2008 by Knight and McGrath, OKRM is a collaborative design studio working in the fields of art, culture, and commerce, and engaged in ongoing partnerships with artists, curators, editors, architects, designers, and institutions. I met with Oliver and Rory in their studio in Bethnal Green, where we talked about, among other things, the influence of conceptual art on their work, their use of theater and performance in their projects as an organizing principle, and their eagerness to involve manifold facets of design to generate work that is greater than the sum of its parts. And now, here's the interview. I hope you enjoy it. of West England. Yeah. Um, this was in Bristol. Mm-hmm. And um, you described it, Rory, as like a city wrapped in a giant Rizla. <laughs> yeah. Uh, contained, That's on record. Contained and intense, but without rigor. Yeah. So it seemed like, I don't know if you feel the same way, Oliver, um, but there's something missing in your education yeah. that you had to go and seek elsewhere. Exactly. Mm. Um, so what were you looking for and where did you find it? Well, yeah, exactly. So Bristol is a classic art school. Um, it's in a place called Bar Ashton, which is this uh, purpose-built art school, modernist architecture, surrounded by stag fields in, in, in the countryside just outside of Bristol. And it's really intense. It's a very intense place because there's a lot of people there with great ideas, but not a lot of um, training or, or tutoring. So in that sense, it's really, it was like a, a, we would call that like a proper art school. It's an investigative space. Um, because of our lack of actual training, when we started to understand what it is we were doing, we would try and seek that information in other places. So the library was a place that we spent a lot of time. Um, and I think one of the things we discovered was was uh, almost the absolute opposite of Bristol was this kind of Swiss modernism, you know, like the benchmark of, of kind of rigour and, and industrial uh, training in typography and uh, grid-based graphic design. A book, a very famous book of that era was uh, Raster Systems or Grid Systems by Miller Brockman. Mm-hmm. And I remember discovering that and thinking, wow, this is really so organized and so pure and wouldn't it be amazing to have that level of of, uh, rigor yeah so you basically became aware that there was other ways of um, learning 
<coughs> how to be a graphic designer. And it's not necessarily that uh, Bristol's any different to other universities um, or art colleges um, in the UK. Mm -hmm. um, because I think all the, the way that graphic design is taught in the UK is very free, it's very open. As Rory said, it's more like um, learning uh, art or an artistic practice. Mm -hmm. um, whereas on the continent, it's just way more rigorous. I mean, you get taught how to set type, how to can probably have to design typefaces it's a way well, that was at least our understanding I yeah. think that's more or less Switzerland that was like yeah, the maybe. kind of pro protagonist of that um, <clears throat> you yeah. mentioned to like a trip to Prague that had some bearing on your yeah. self formation what was that about that's funny you know about that that was the first project Ollie and I collaborated on. Yeah, that was a, a field trip to Prague where we were tasked to, to identify and communicate a sense of place. <clears throat> and we we got really, really into it. Got really into this idea of like free, how you articulate a freedom of speech. And our whole work was based around that. And I think we both, start from that point of view, started to develop a, an interest in language and expression and content mm. from that point onward. Mm. Yeah. I feel like those three words kind of make a... There's like a trifecta of, of like focuses that the office to this day seems to be interested in. Mm. And I want to start with language. And an early project of yours called In Other Words. Yeah, exactly. Um, could you just explain what it was at the beginning? Because I know it's evolved into different things now. Yeah, exactly. Well, in other words, it was simply an investigation into English language and into the peculiarities and nuances that exist within the language. Um, and our first project was um, about new words that were introduced to the English language through the Oxford English Dictionary or to the Oxford English Dictionary. And every year, I think around 20 new words. I think there's loads of new words, but what we basically we were just doing a bit of research into, and every year they highlight 16. Mm. And we were like, oh, well, that's, that kind of relates to the signature of a book. Why don't, we, why don't we kind of like work with these 16 words to kind of create new sentences? Well, in a way to practice whether those words were actually usable. Uh -huh. So that was, it was a sort of testing ground for, uh, you know, new language. Uh -huh. yeah. it was, so it was an eight-page booklet, and you were using these new, newly introduced words to the English language yeah. uh, in novel ways. Yeah. And it's kind of like taking them out for a ride a bit, testing yeah. them out, yeah. mm -hmm. seeing how they feel. making the most contemporary sentences possible. Yes. And so I'm going to read, there's a couple here. Um, hot swap saves subprime hardware is one. And then radio physics is a hell's a poppin' topic. And um, there are like, they're kind of like achingly contemporary. Yeah. <laughs> and to me, what that signals is like, an interest in like what is now or what is present <clears throat> what is of the immediate moment mm -hmm. um, and it looks like I guess based on the way that you frame this project at least online um, it's an ever evolving endeavor mm -hmm. and it's come to mean other things <clears throat> um, most recently I guess it's also a publishing project mm -hmm. yeah exactly 
But are there other parts of it in between that I'm missing? No, it was well, resurrected. There were, it was well, there, other, there were other projects. I mean, there yeah. other projects in line with the first one that we made. Okay. We made a series. We made, a series of, we made a, a, an English sentence using only French words. Okay. And a French sentence using only English words. That was for I Magazine, for example. Yeah. And then we made an Engl- uh, a, a small publication about um, Cockney rhyming slang and the sort of idiosyncrasies and, and the peculiarities that exist within that. Um, and then we made also a, a project for a show called The Book Show that was part of Eastside Projects program by a curator called James Langdon, who was also a designer, or is a designer. And that was about uh, the peculiarities of oh, more double, double negatives and the idea of uh, contradiction that exists in English language. Okay. So it kind of, it, in a way, it was it was a, a research platform or program that we had, and we were using it um, whenever we were asked for some form of um, contribution. contribution to a project. Uh-huh. That was our like, let's say, our artistic practice. Uh-huh. It's a kind of exercise you revisit again and exactly. again. Exactly. What it sounds like is you're taking, you're picking up these new words and holding them up to the light and just seeing what they look like in different perspectives or exactly. what they look like arranged in different ways. But language really feels like a material yeah. in that sense. Exactly. Um, which is interesting to me um, as an architect in a way because uh, there's a constructive potential there and you can kind of build things with text in a way that you wouldn't necessarily think is possible. Um, so I want to kind of jump out of this chronology for a second, and like the way I found out about your work was through a project called uh, Under the Same Sun. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. So this was an ad essentially for uh, an exhibition at the South London Gallery mm-hmm. on contemporary Latin American art. Exactly. Um, and there was a big campaign, there were posters in the tube, Yeah. and uh, it was just the word sun over and over and over again. And then the name of the show, Under the Same Sun, at the bottom. And um, I couldn't tell if it was an artwork or if it was promoting something initially. And it made me so happy to see that kind of stuff out um, out in the world. Exactly. Uh, in a space typically reserved for um, the most ruthless kind of marketing. Yeah. Uh, so there's like there's a lot of pleasure there, I guess, in the way that things are promoted, mm-hmm. and there's a specific approach to language that I think that project kind of embodies, that a lot of your other work does as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess right now I'm just kind of expressing my enthusiasm for that. <laughs> <laughs> um, but if we go back for a second. Um, I guess the the connection between like text or language is material, mm-hmm. um, and this interest maybe in like double negatives or contradictions. Um, there's something there's something about literalness there, mm-hmm. and I think designing um, things or making work that um, becomes the thing it tries to describe. Mm-hmm. So these kinds of projects, like, they're very objective and, like, um, obvious in some ways. Um, but actually, like, not a lot of people design that way. There's a specific approach or um, maybe an ideology. And, um, I, I mean, you mentioned Swiss modernism. Mm. 
I'm just kind of curious, like, where else this attitude comes from, uh, or how it originated. I mean, we had always um, been very open to different references and um, art history and design history and, and really just taking on information, but um, we weren't exactly sure what legacy or which trajectory we were actually playing within. Uh, it came clear to us later that really the work that we were doing then and, and now is really linked to conceptual art, I mean, and the roots of conceptual art. And um, artists such as Joseph Kosuth and Lawrence Vino and uh, Uncle Ara, Sol Lewitt, you know, this, this interest in exploring a very particular concept and letting that idea generate form. I think Kasuth is a good one to hold on for a second. And so for people who are listening who are familiar, this is the guy who took a picture of a chair and put it on a wall and then put the chair in front of the picture. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. exactly. And playing with the idea of how you can understand a simple object in the, in terms of the definition, the object itself, and an image of the object. And they were always, always used that same structure. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a whole, I mean, we've read now, you know, because we've had time, we've read like whole research into these artists and understood what they're doing. and really respect their uh, clarity especially there's there's an essay by Sol Lewitt called Notes on Conceptual Art which is incredible it's it's really clear he he, he in a way crafted perfectly the reason for his art based on you know the the, the idea of uh, idea being a generator for art Uh Um, that's not something that as designers you have a lot of time for you know unfortunately which is uh you know, it's why the forums like this are really so valuable to explore and understand a little more about ourselves. Yeah. But I think I think part of the reason for <clears throat> us working like that is because we're always very sensitive to the meaning of things. And I think as a graphic designer working for um, institutions or you know other companies, you're, you're working with other people's messages a lot of the time. Mm-hmm. But those people whose messages you're working with aren't necessarily good at writing those messages down. So we really start to pay a lot of attention to what things said. And as soon as you do that, um, you you really open up to for, for us as designers to open up to simplicity and like quirk. You know, you want to be able to communicate through typography and those, those, those simple sequence of words or uh, graphic forms. I like um, that. So I think this is a this is a chance now to talk about how you do collaborate. I think Roy, you've used this phrase in the past, like being at the mercy of and then whoever you're working for. And oftentimes it is an artist, actually. Mm. Um, As a graphic designer, you're in this strange position of translating, um, I guess, a set of directions uh, into a thing, into a piece of work. Maybe we could talk a little bit about one project that kind of is a literal embodiment of that process, which is the Billboard book project, um, published by Three Star <coughs> Books. This is a collaboration with Jonathan Monk, exactly. a, concept, a conceptual artist, <coughs> who designed a billboard, which, um, very like in a very delicious metafictional way, advertised the process of its own making by crediting all the people involved in its production. And then, as graphic designers, you were tasked with turning this somehow into a book, 
And as I understand it, like the directions were pretty vague, mm -hmm. and you were kind of given free reign. Mm -hmm. But what can you explain what you ended up doing with that billboard? How you made it into a commodity, essentially? Yeah, I mean, it's tricky. It's it, like you said, there was complete free reign, which is as designers and the position that we accept always uh, very challenging because we look for uh, constraint, you know, immediately, you know, as a means to drive ideas. And in this case, there wasn't a huge amount, you know, we had to really generate our own constraint. Um, so, what we the method. Maybe we should say something about how Jonathan briefed it, because he he's he's very he he works a little bit like you know the Sol Lewis, you know, but in his own way and what kind of humorous way, and he briefed us in an email which was literally one sentence long, which was uh, I mean was was it was something like can you design me a billboard and a book which is self-referential and then everything else is up to us from that moment on that's his work done mm. he's kind of conceptualized the framework and then we need to figure out we need to pick up the pieces and figure out how to make it but that was driven by an interest in creating our own problems which is something that comes up again and again in our work these mm. days mm. is that you're not often given um, or asked a question which gives you constraint you know you have to generate your own constraint your own problem and in this case we referred back to history and we referred to um, the sense of how does a book relate to a, a sheet which is essentially the essential fact of the work so the fact is that sheets always came in particular sizes historically in, in British or imperial uh, measures those those size those sheet sizes were always named um, beautiful names but this particular sheet size that we decided to refer to was the royal the royal sheet um, and the amount of times you fold a royal sheet determines the name of that particular format so uh, octavo would be eight folded eight times or uh, sixtimo or quattro or you know dependent on the amount of times you fold it so we borrowed those formats we made a, a very very large royal sheet size from the billboard and then the amount of times that the um, the sheet was folded would determine the scale of the book would determine how obviously how high that book was so from the smaller scale the book became much thicker than the larger size um, and we knew that problem would generate an interesting outcome because we knew that there would be uh, a comparative set of scales of, of books um, we knew that royal could be used as a determining factor of other things for instance color like royal blue so we used royal blue and typographically we created another kind of problem which was to use um, that we would only use times the, the typeface by Stanley Morrison but we would use every version of times and times comes in like beautiful versions everything from times 18 which was uh, a kind of like headline version of the typeface through to times small which was designed for like ultra small use in newspapers mm. so we th that problem generated a kind of like well, that outcome of, of acknowledging that problem created a kind of typographic solution the royal generated the color the royal generated the sheet size and the folding structure yeah. one of the kind of original and, premises for it was yeah. that <coughs> i mean we didn't actually say that but so the the the, the, the idea was to design a billboard and that billboard folded down would become the book so mm. essentially the book would be a series of chopped up you know you would just see very abstract crops of a bigger thing mm. 
so we kind of looked upon this book as it, it was always going to be like a sculpture mm. rather than a book you could read so the idea was to try and make the most extreme version of a book sculpture which is why we made all these different formats, formats exactly yeah. it's just interesting hearing you explain the project because um, in in many ways this is your project mm. and you conceived of its parameters um, being prompted by a very vague kind of brief mm-hmm. and what it's leading me to is this question of attribution and like the role of the graphic designer um, in this artist designer relationship mm-hmm. because you're not merely a mouthpiece for an artist's creative vision um, and you're not a laborer or a worker executing a command you're actually inventing something and yet this is a Jonathan Monk artwork in the end yeah so what I mean where do you see yourselves there <laughs> yeah it's a really good question and it's something that we constantly ask ourselves and we try to understand but um, everybody every artist um, or practitioner um, generates their work from something you know some other place position whether it's historical or institutional or um, you know personal you know and, and, and it's layered you know so it's really our position that we've we've uh, accepted or you know and chosen to, to work uh, to generate work from these conditions which are um, um, <clears throat> ambiguous mm-hmm. you know it's it's not always clear to anybody how we're to work on a project, we generate our own our own conditions. In that sense, I think we kind of generate our own freedom, and maybe there's a certain kind of satisfaction from that, which uh, others don't have. You know, like artists maybe don't have, which is why maybe so many artists, you know, are driven to some sort of uh, psychotic breakdown, <laughs> some sort of turmoil. You know, we we don't have that uh, position because in a way we're protected by the. Um, you know, by others, or we have the uh, we have others to work with. Hmm. Um, it's complicated, and it's not always clear to us, honestly. But I know that we really accept and enjoy the, the position that we have. Yeah, I don't know. It's a, it is a funny relationship. I don't know exactly how I feel about it, but I think that you know, as, as we chose to be designers, but we didn't necessarily know what we were getting ourselves in for because you don't when you're a young creative. And then once you're once you're kind of working within a practice, I guess, or within a discipline, what you try to do if you're a creative person is push at the edges of that. And so there has been, I said, yeah. within the design work that we make, we do push at the edges of what people expect from a graphic designer. Um, yeah, in a way, and that's, 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 that is a really good example because actually, we, you know, with Jonathan, we kind of co-authored that interpretation of that idea. Um, but that, that exists kind of, in many forms. And it, yeah, it, it exists in many forms. Yeah, but we don't yeah. necessarily have like a um, in the way same way as Jonathan does. He has a, he's very fixated on a specific part of contemporary art and always riffing on that, mm. right? Whereas we we can we can a, apply our approach to any subject matter. It doesn't matter. We can. Yeah, it's I quite mean, limitless. Yeah, and in that sense, it's, it's a really interesting discipline to work with. Can you get to? meet and work and collaborate with all sorts of practitioners from you know many fields. I want to talk about the Stroka Institute identity rebrand now because I feel like this is almost the, like the opposite of the book project 
with Jonathan Monk. So with, with uh, the Billboard book, you kind of have this strange loop, and it's very like, it's a closed circuit of meaning in a way, and it's re referencing itself, and in the end it's a finite object or series of objects of Billboard and the books of the Billboard. Mm -hmm. But with something like the Stralka Institute, uh, which just uh, explained for those who aren't familiar, it's a nonprofit media architecture and design organization um, based in um, Moscow. Moscow. Um, so they were looking to, to rebrand themselves <coughs> in multiple formats across numerous platforms. Um, and you guys not only designed the visual identity for the institution, but e-publication covers, uh, billboards and signage, notepads, apparel, apps. Um, it, it seems like it kind of folded out into almost everything, including architectural space, actually. Yeah. Um, could you just, was this the first time uh, that you had that kind of rain? Yes. Yeah, it was. Mm. But we always knew that we would have that kind of rain. <laughs> because that's our idea. I do, always... We do remember thinking, when, when are we ever <laughs> going to get the opportunity to do a project? Like, you know, rebrand an art gallery and, do, and, and then all of a sudden it kind of happened and then... Yeah, but uh, uh, honestly, it's something that we always talked about is this idea of total design, uh -huh. which is um, which now I think we kind of refer to as to the total artwork, mm -hmm. which is the idea of um, an idea that drives and generates everything and anything within a given space. So with this project, like it, it made me think about how um, the, the intent is to design not necessarily an outcome or a specific thing, but like a system or a framework, which seems like like a key interest of, of your office, in a way, that you design uh, a potential, and it can kind of unfold in different ways. And so can you just explain a little bit about um, how you came to design the specific system for Astralka? In terms of conceptually? Yeah. <clears throat> so we, um, it's a, very similar to the Billboard Book Project. It may have even been at the same sort of time huh. in that we had to collect a series of problems because, and you could call that parameters, you could call that constraints, you could call that ideas. I think these are, these are vocabularies that are kind of interchangeable. But, but what we set out to do is to create a series of, of clear problems or in the case of Shoko, I believe we called them objectives. That was the word we were using at the time. Mm. <clears throat> and we did that through discussion. You know, that's something that was really important to our practice is that we are genuinely interested in listening and exchanging of, of, of information with others. You know, and we're, we're not shy. You know, we, we, we love working with, with teams. So we went to Stroka, which is uh, Moscow, and a very, very different culture. It was led by... Um, the director Ilya, who is a total visionary, you know, he's, he was amazing at explaining why Stroker existed, which really inspired us to understand um, 
the real crux of it, the real the real ideas, the objectives. So what we did over a series of maybe three days in Moscow at the beginning is asked a series of questions. Um, we listened, we talked, and we came out with a very specific set of objectives, which were um, this would be an institute that was um, constantly redefining itself. This would be an institute that was uh, based in Russia and Moscow, but very much aware and looking to the outside. This would be an institute that would be focused on public space. Um, this would be an institute that... Um, uh, help me out here, Oli, because I'm, I'm going to forget the, the other that ideas. That was uh, democratic in terms of... Um, because obviously you have to... It was... It was um, democratic, institution, exactly. Yeah, yeah, institution based in Moscow at a specific time where democracy was incredible yeah they really wanted to make a, they wanted to make a point of a democratic institution which was promoting itself as well as all the people that went to speak there or give lectures or practice there so. exactly so once you take those series of objectives each one of those directly refers to a concept or an idea a realisation of part of, of its identity um, so take for example the idea of uh, well the idea of a public space an issue focused on public space, how could we articulate that? So we articulate that through the grid, the, yeah. the space. Well, something important to mention space. is that they, yeah. they basically had a courtyard in the centre of the institution, which during the summer um, programme, every day it would become a different public space, doing something else. It would either be a farmer's market or like a trampoline park or a lecture or a theatre performance. or exactly. There's always something else So we, we look to embody that space, and that space was embodied or, or communicated through a grid. The idea of an institute that was constantly redefining itself was articulated by um, removing the idea of that this was an institute for media, architecture and design, which is how it how it was called, but instead we would create a platform which we called the Strelka m m uh, mantra. mantra, which would mean that it could be the institute for anything. So that would be the institute for constantly redefining the city or the institute for... Um, the future, uh, the future of, Russia. Of, of Russia or the Institute for etc which meant that anyone and everyone within the institution could be part of thinking about what that institution mm. was the way you're describing the process it sounds so much like a think tank almost and yeah. that the work you're doing as a designer isn't again just about execution or even about translating existing ideas but it's actually about thinking yeah, thinking good. maybe more through design and through images and form but still okay. like actually dredging up new ideas um, and then there's also this the way you're describing it this like this theme of like repetition and the generation of content and thinking back to another project of yours for the art gallery Rivington Place again there's this like process of um coming up with everything the institution is and then as the identity for that institution just allowing that list to accumulate Exactly. Um, you almost can't really refute it or disagree with it or contest it because it simply is that there's a kind of objectivity there Exactly. that's something we find with our work and I think that's another reason why we practice in the way we do is because we don't agree with the idea that we are any ha in any way related to decorators of pre-existing 
material. material. Yeah. We, we generate material. And that's in the case of Schalke, for example, which is very unusual for, for design practices, we only ever presented one design. And that was the design that, that uh, was realised. And yes, it went through a series of refinements and it was sort of mastered so it would be robust and, and could last. Um, well, it still lasts. It's, it's, it's functioning very well. Um, but it means that we can also be like very efficient and economical how we work, which we really agree with. That's really something we believe in. We don't believe in waste. You know, we believe that things should be sustainable mm. in their pract- in practice. Um, and Stroker had a lot of have, has a lot of energy. It had a lot of energy at the time, and we we didn't want to waste any of it. Mm-hmm. We wanted to just work with it and keep it alive. So it was more like giving Stroker tools to express itself. that uh, you guys seem to rely on a lot it has to do with like conventions of theater and storytelling yeah um, and I mean it's present in earlier work like um, there's this project called reading the VNA mm-hmm. um, which was essentially like a mini theater project yeah um, with fragments of script uh, and performances throughout the, the VNA itself and then more recently with this designing the surface exhibition, in Rotterdam, mm-hmm. where I don't think you were even asked to do this, but you approached the the project of um, of graphic design for this exhibition, which was about surface materials, mm-hmm. as a kind of theatrical challenge. Exactly. And with every pavilion becoming a kind of stage set, and you actually worked with uh, a theater writer. Um, no, no, th- so two two writers. One was uh, Kate O'Brien. Kate O'Brien. Who's a, f- a fictional writer. Okay. And another, in fact, was Jack Self, who's yeah. a completely ambidextrous writer. Uh-huh. who's was able to kind of understand how to work in that way. Um, and so why why theatre? Because it, it, we believe it is theatre. Like, that's its actual condition. The exhibition is, is akin to theatre. And maybe even is theatre. It's a fiction, mm. you know. It's a way of presenting material, which uh, is totally recontextualised now. And, and and in that sense, it's being presented in a. It, it's an. It's a kind of a condition which is very sort of artificial, mm. you know. And we need to give it um, uh, a, that material a method to exist uh-huh. in this new surrounding. Uh-huh. But it's, I, think and, I think it's also the power of yeah. like recontextualization. Like there's so many, so many exhibitions that you go to which show you an object and they describe the object in a very straight way, which is it, it can be fine if the object's really beautiful, then you might be interested. But just that that general relationship between viewer and object is just a little bit flat when you when you experience it ten times. Hmm. 
um, the idea of like turning um, an object, which we did in this case, into a actor or a, you know a part of a bigger performance or a dialogue, just gives the viewer that opportunity to experience an exhibition in a kind of strange way, something which is just not what they're expecting. But also to and learn and to make those make that information memorable, which is the actual object or objective of of our, as us as designers. And in the case of the VNA, same thing. I mean that that was born out of a very simple project, which was to design a series of posters, I believe, for uh, Friday night lates at the V&A, which would uh, sort of open the V&A up to audiences late into the night. And we we felt as though just designing a kind of, let's say, a graphic um, poster would be too too passive. So we wanted to turn it into something of an active participatory event. Mm. So we said, let's not just design posters, let's let these posters actually be part props mm. and scripts of a performance mm. that will reenact within the sculpture. It's kind of like that sensation yeah. when you're watching actors and they kind of break that fourth wall all of a sudden and they speak to you a bit mm. and all of a sudden it's not just a poster anymore, mm. you're being invited into this performance in a way. Exactly. There are other things I want to talk about, the real review being one of them. So this is a magazine about contemporary culture with the strapline, what it means to live today. And it's in collaboration with The Real Foundation and Jack Self. But you are co-creators in this project. We are creative partners. Creative partners. Yeah. Okay. I think it's, it feels to me like a more amplified version of this In Other Words project. Like it, it's on steroids, but it's kind of the same thing where you're looking at contemporary elements and you're trying to use them in different ways as designers but also as uh, cultural critics to a certain extent. Mm -hmm. But if we just talk about the design of the thing, mm -hmm. um, there's something incredibly novel about it in that it's like a folded magazine. So typically when newspapers are folded, they're folded top to bottom, but you apply the same process to fold this magazine vertically Mm. And then it's kind of formatted in these four columns as a result. Exactly. And then even the typeface, which is called Gestalt, exactly, um, uses subtle permutations of the same type family. Yeah. Um, and what else is there? There's all these kind of elements to it that make it kind of vibrate a little bit in a way that mm. publications don't typically... the face typically. as well is another really the face, the symbol, aspect. but we use this term, I mean this this series of ideas coexisting together uh -huh. is something that exists in all of our work mm. and we didn't ever call it this but by have from working with an artist that we work with a lot called Thomas Paulson, who goes by the name of Foss mm. He uses the term and introduces us to the term as the gestalt, mm -hmm. which is greater than the sum of its parts. And we really love that. That mm. for us is like very true of the of the design designs we make, but certainly designs like Rear Review. Mm. But it's a series of ideas that coexist in synthesis with one another to make a single uh, object which yeah we hope has resonance you know like that's what we hope it creates I, we believe I, I don't know we don't want to get too mystical or anything but that we do believe in a certain kind of alchemy mm -hmm. you know that does exist there's a certain sort of greater power that comes from using elements together in a specific way and real view is a good example because it's 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 very it's an efficient thing I mean that the idea of the design 
was uh, bought out of and, and um, make sure it's appropriate to the idea that it's efficient and economical. You know, that's what it is. It's an efficient economical magazine that can uh, stand the test of time, that can be self-sufficient, that doesn't require any any other kind of funding or um, that, that it purely exists based on its readers and people buying it. So it's it's it has to be it's it has to be noble to that. Mm. Otherwise, um, it would fail. Beyond the the challenge of actually designing the object of the magazine itself and its its kind of graphic design, um, your role as co-creator is um, bleeds into its production and distribution. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, like how else are you involved in a, in a project like that as a co-creator? Well, for, I mean, just going back to the beginning, we we um, <clears throat> we were already used to working with Jack, I believe. I think it was the first sort of major project we did with Jack alone. It was like the beginning of Real Foundation. Well, no, we'd already, we worked on the home economics. Had we worked on home yeah. economics? Yeah, because Real would be long- uh, um, in Venice, isn't it? Ah, of course. Okay, so we We started to work together intensely, essentially, yeah. at that time. So we had a whole... It just felt like when we started Real Review, we, we had a whole conversation's worth of ideas, mm-hmm. you know? And um, we weren't willing to just do... A, I mean, none of our projects, we're, we're just willing to do a graphic design and say good luck with it guys and walk away and start our next project we we take it seriously as part of our work um so we yeah we knew that we had to create a system that was going to be sustainable and that needed to be efficient like we talked about you're right in that the format was novel it had to be it not it wasn't to make a format that would be novel it was to make a format that would make it easy or um efficient to make distinctive design without the need for uh, nuanced compositional layout which is really tiring having done an art directed kaleidoscope magazine for three years previous which was purely compositional we knew that wasn't going to be efficient we knew we needed a robust system there was also a couple of premises which I think are worth mentioning which are um, the, the kind of design of Real Review was born out of a rejection of what was going on in magazine culture at that time which was to make you know, very image-driven magazines, which look, which are more like books than they mm. are magazines, and they mm. sell for like twenty or thirty pounds, mm. you know. or even less. But sometimes, but they would then would be like poor books, yeah. you know, and then they would, but they would essentially be um, lifestyle objects yeah. that were very light on content and heavy on on decoration. Yeah. So mm. the premise is to make the opposite of that, which is mm. why it's on like very very thin, cheapish mm. paper. Um, Every single page is like densely packed. So like the real estate of the page is very valuable. So every every kind of piece of it, yeah, and to the point where even the recto verso, the classic scenario of the left and the right page, wasn't going to be just two pages. It would be four pages. So the fold creates in a way an extra page. Mm-hmm. So you actually get four page numbers on every spread. So even even that sort of became a driving yeah. driving factor. And um, Seb McLaughlin, who's been a designer at the studio for four years. Um, uh, he had just—I think he was—he was—he had just finished or was finishing a typeface called Gestalt, and that—that that we decided to use for the first time and, and finish it for the for the magazine. And it—it it, it gives us what we call a kind of like in a way a quiet revolution. You know, it's, it looks and performs like a very well-drawn sans serif typeface, like Helvetica or Univer, but it has nuances, little nuances and little details which just show that something is is um, 
is happening even on that on the most micro level. Mm. So I guess moving from publishing and uh, this translation of uh, certain ideas uh, into an object, I guess what I'm trying to do is get from publishing and graphic design into something that's approaching architecture, which to me is this exhibition design you collaborated on with Sam Jacob, the architect, for the Design Museum in 2017. This was called Fear and Love. And uh, Roy, you presented this project um, as a part of uh, It's Nice That Talk. Mm -hmm. um, and you were, you were presenting really specific images of what to me looked like architectural details. Mm -hmm. And you were talking about materials and uh, the kind of emotions they could be thought of to elicit. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden, I felt like I was watching an architect talk. And it was just kind of exciting for me to see this, a bit of a leap, I guess, in disciplines. Um, would you guys consider yourselves, or to what degree would you consider yourselves a spatial or material practice versus a graphic practice? Yeah, we were really open to that, right? I mean, we, the first thing about us is we're very tortured by title. Mm. We the graphic designer comes up a lot in this conversation, and mm. it's something that we're almost like my like um, anti. You know, mm. we 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 call ourselves a design practice mainly because we really love the idea that uh, what we do can transcend any particular medium or discipline. It's uh, out of real respect, not out of a kind of um, for ulterior motives. Only because we believe in a universality of design. And with fear and love, it was the first time we had. We'd, we'd play a lot with materials. Material, materials, and the meaning of materials is part of our work since day one, for sure. If you're working with printed materials, like books, for example, books are spaces, definitely, and that's how we consider them. And the material value of a book, and the way the material can, materials can kind of combine to communicate ideas, is something that we've realised for a while, and we knew could be um, worked with as communication tools within a spatial design, like an exhibition. Mm -hmm. Fear and Love we decided to deal with in a really extreme way to, to sort of highlight that potential. Yeah, it, was the first, it was the first project we'd ever approached thinking that we wanted to communicate through mood mm. rather than through... Uh, through uh, words, actually. Because, because materials aren't explicit yeah. in the same way that words like are. an atmosphere yeah. which could conjure up this, this spirit that Justin McGurk, the curator, was trying to uh, communicate with the, these kind of alternative design projects, which mm. were kind of, a, you know, we kind of approached it as, as it was a slightly dystopian vision of the future, and how can you communicate that through materiality? Mm. That was the kind of starting point. Well, it was a lot, it was not necessarily, I don't know if it's dystopian. I mean, it has dystopian tendencies, but I think we're, it's more an optimism. Mm, it's, it's yeah. a, in my opinion, it's an optimism about the potential of the things that exist in dystopian culture. Yeah, yeah, yeah. okay. Yeah. So there's, an, there's a, it's about extracting from uh, from dystopian tendency and mm. instead bringing them into a condition where they're utopian again, mm. and optimistic. Just to, just to give focused. listeners a sense of like what kind of materials we're talking about. Um, there was a lot of like insulation materials, materials associated with disease and evacuation, um, uh, pole protectors, <laughs> polypropylene signs. You were using a direct printing method mm -hmm. to print text onto these 
these like materials associated with, I guess, in, to some degree, defense. Yeah, and this, this, yeah, the sense of emergency or protection. I mean, this is, I mean, just over there, we have a kind of. Uh, oh, right object taken direct from the show but yeah so we, we did a lot of research into um into kind of architectural insulation materials and yeah pole protectors of which we kind of collected about a hundred different types just but we worked, ones we worked extremely yeah i mean yeah. we really didn't take that that um likely i mean we really wanted to understand like really how many how much beauty was in a way lost through uh, through just being a lot of these materials are applied in ways you'd never see them i mean they're invisible yet they're so beautiful mm-hmm. so I think that's where the optimism lied as well it's like this kind of where did your collaboration with Sam Jacob come into play here in terms of like mm. being able to grant yourselves the freedom to um, look at these materials as as tools for graphic design or for mm-hmm. design in general well the thing is it's not it's it, it's Sam, Sam is a, was a great collaborator, and we all, all lots of respect for Sam. He does amazing work, but our practices are quite different. Like he's he's got his own um, uh, interests and agendas, and we have ours. And and it just we have a lot of respect for each other, so we were really happy to, we to work in the same project. We get a good amount of space, but I think what, what for us. Oh, we were quite focused on the idea in museum culture, in especially in UK, there's this fascination between that the, the curator creates a collaboration between an architect and a, and a um, they often call it a graphics person. Mm. And we were we always dislike this because we find this kind of condition just not helpful to uh, design. You know, it's it's limited and it's it often doesn't create actual synthesis or collaboration. So we really because we were working with Justin for a long time before any anyone else was commissioned we um, anticipated the idea that we wanted to develop our own uh, a, a kind of solid project or foundation for a project that then when the architect entered the project they would be able to um, work with you know like a, in, in that sense it's more akin to a kind of form of curation I would say at the mm-hmm. beginning of that or we could call it like an art direction you know mm-hmm. um, you know material direction concept direction there isn't really a term that fits you know um, but yeah, what Sam Sam worked really to um, execute the spatial principle. So like how how the objects were arranged and the distances between things and um, and this kind of, of the, this idea of the curtain, which curtain is like exactly. one continuous curtain which swept around the entire space. Yeah. And our kind of you know whilst discussing this idea, we felt that anything which was like. Um, communication related in the show should feel like it is attached to a totem we just wanted to create like 10 totems around the space and he had this this kind of crazy mm. curtain which just looped around so and a coats of soft and hard materials and, and so you know we went through lots of crazy iterations but this idea of totem and what you can actually attach to a totem Mm. And um, the and result utility. was all of these kind of um, yeah insulation materials etc. But it's about trying to create like a weird a weird tension with what you expect mm. in, a, in a kind of exhibition space. Yeah, and also a tension between what the ideas and the words were share being you know communicating and what you were seeing and feeling. Mm. Um, all the typography in the whole show was set in system Helvetica, mm. and it was purposefully basic in order to put all the attention and the expression towards the materials mm. so but this is a way we've been we've been working since you know it's something that we really 
we really enjoy, mm -hmm. for sure. I want to jump now from um, exhibition design into the world of fashion, um, which I guess brings us even closer to this interest in performance because now we're looking at uh, costume mm -hmm. <laughs> and the, the kind of way we adorn ourselves in order to express ourselves. So there's this, there's this fashion house mm -hmm. called Alix, which I don't know much about, but I know that you are heavily involved with now and have been for the past year or so. Yeah, just over a year. Um, in uh, in rebranding mm -hmm. them. Um, and Roy, there's this line from you I just want to read out, um, I guess as a way of finishing this last leg of the conversation. Um, and it's that clothes, quote, uh, clothes don't exist in a social vacuum. They're mobilized and deployed by individuals and groups for specific purposes. That's why storytelling and fiction are so necessary in fashion. It is also why a clear belief in system is so important. Without ideological precision, you can't control form or context. This kind of like neatly ties up, I think, a lot of what we've been talking about, but it's applied specifically to um, thinking about clothing. Mm -hmm. I'm just curious like, what role as collaborators in this project you're playing um, in the design of clothing itself versus the way the clothing is represented and um, ultimately consumed. Mm. Well, Alix is a, a perfect example of the, the, the total design or total artwork as a project. You know, we really touch every single element of its, its, uh, of its existence. Um, and that goes, I mean, maybe it's just to touch on a few parts of the work. I mean, it touches on everything from, we designed every single piece of hardware, you know, every single uh, button, zip, every element. And we make sure, we made sure that every one of those elements is completely unique from the other. So there's a sense of, um, it's beyond system. It's more of a... Um, it's it's a system which is built out of uh, a, f a mixture of philosophy and uh, principle, formal principle, which uh, is really satisfying to work with. Then we started to work with space, with art direction, storytelling, narrative projects around collections. We've now collaborated with uh, with with Matthew Williams, who's the creative director and founder and Lee Roach who's the lead designer on a kind of capsule collection which then borrows from and works with an, the narrative project of the season which is Ex Nilo which is just just launched and which is a collaboration between Daniel Shea and us exactly mm -hmm. and what we've done is we've created we've we've uh, we've started to build um, various forms of collaboration within within a, f a fixed idea which um, it's quite specific how that fixed idea comes to be mm -hmm. because there is obviously an idea before we started with the, within the leaks because the leaks has, has existed for two, two, two years at least two, three years I mean Matthew founded an, an amazing and he's an amazingly talented designer in himself but what we were um, asked to do um, and we noticed we could do is create a kind of frame around the project, which you could call a kind of brand, you know, like let's say you'd, you, a clarification of the brand, but then you also start to work on the content within the frame. 
Mm-hmm. So it's very much about the relationship between frame and content. It's really, it's a really difficult project to summarise mm-hmm. quickly because it's multifaceted. Mm-hmm. Um, but I guess it, somewhere to start is that when, when we, like when we worked at the Stroke Institute, when we started working with the leaks, we used to, we worked, we did a workshop with them, trying to extract an ideology, and you know, an, an ideology which existed within within Matthew's head. But we helped to kind of like make it concrete and then um, figure out ways of <clears throat> the brand responding to that ideology exactly. through the projects that it creates. And that's, and that's called a manifesto. The artistic commissions, the space, how then that um, uh, responds to clothing and all these different things. So it suddenly starts to become a kind of seamless project where everything responds to each other. Yeah, to each and other. And it's very much about, we call, we use terms, for instance, like ecosystem. Um, we use the terms what Ollie was talking about before in that beginning process we call a, the making of a kind of manifesto which then becomes a kind of brief which we can then feed off and and uh, use to create specific projects mm. um, and Matthew the thing that which is so incredible about fashion or at least Matthew Williams is his generosity he's very very interested in the brand supporting creativity and the contemporary ideas in which case anything is possible you know um, from music to art to architecture um, uh, etc so we we um, being you know again like I would say opt optimistic designers would take that opportunity very seriously and we try and expand it to the most extreme level possible because you've had so many fruitful collaborations um, and you've so like successfully been able to uh, in a sense like translate uh, certain attitudes or ideologies into material and graphic expression um, is there a point where you see uh, OKRM itself becoming the the origin in a way, or is there a kind of internal project um, in formation, or is it always about these relationships with outside factors or or protagonists? It's a good question. It's I mean, a really I guess, good question. I, we the... don't, I don't think we we first thing we should say is we don't really know yet. We just well, got we're, we're, instincts. We're, 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 we're on a journey and it's been going on for 10 years and every now and then something comes up which kind of ch- changes the trajectory of that a little bit. I mean, in other words, being one of them, as, as you mentioned at the beginning, it started off as a kind of self-initiated project but it developed into a publishing house of which we're now making about you know eight to ten books a year. And, in that and we, can, we do consider that to be... A specific project in its own right. We're not just working on individual books. We're working on a kind of collection. We're working on like creating cultural objects, which you know hopefully stand the test of time. So I think if you're talking about projects, which we initiate, I think in other words is is the first one like that. But I think really recently we started to talk about OKRM as a project. If if yeah. we're honest, I think that OKRM is is certainly a project. In as in we, we consider um, everything in one way one go but with absolute respect um, to the indiv- other individuals we work with their own needs so in that sense we, we consider that um, very much about sort of synthesis where you're able to make something together that can serve different purposes um, this point of origin question it's it's ambiguous to us we don't know I mean I think that the idea of um, self-initiated projects 
will always come up and we'll always find ways to to have self-initiated projects but we we choose we chose the way that we um, started the journey and for us it's all about that journey the journey is the project mm. and it's not about the destination it's about the journey itself which is like a kind of classic thing it's a kind of classic uh, um, idea but we take that that's that's it so you know I don't know we, we have to maybe in 20 years we can figure out if that's like we have got to you know let's say quote unquote destination and mm. we're making our own work uh, without the need of anyone else but for now we're just really enjoying you know the kind of collaborations and learning through doing and mm-hmm. yeah Rory and Oliver thanks so much for your time thank you very much You've been listening to Scaffold. I'm Matthew Blunderfield, and I produce the show. The theme music is composed and performed by Andrew Rayworth of the band Stanley Park, with additional music this week by OKRM. Subscribe to Scaffold on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And follow the show on Twitter and Instagram at scaffold underscore podcast. Thank you, Oliver Knight and Roy McGrath. Special thanks this week to Mark Al-Khatib and Scandal Lynn. And thanks to you for listening. I'll see you again in two weeks. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm lip fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.